I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for some poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Jonathan Dick, a doctoral student here at Penn who comes to us from the University of Toronto and has been a Fulbright Fellow and whose work has been supported by the Research Council of Canada and whose work uh, focuses on connections between contemporary American poetry and forms of computational advance. And by Selena Dyer of Penn's Department of Germanic Languages and Literatures, whose research on transculturalism and migration has her currently focused on 20th and 21st century literature produced by exophonic authors, particularly those from the Arab-speaking world, who's recently spent a year teaching in Suderberg, Germany, which furthered her passion for innovation in foreign language education and inclusive pedagogies. And by Jerome Rothenberg, Jerry Rothenberg, poet, critic, teacher, anthologist, translator, activist, archivist, assembler, organizer, and editor, who has done as much as anyone of his generation to make a radical modernism available to all readers, whose influential anthologies are too numerous to name here, but include poems for the millennium, revolution of the word, technicians of the sacred, and whose books of poetry, just to name a few, include Poland 1931, Seedings, A Paradise of Poets, whose poems and poetics blog at Jacket 2 features new installments every week, whose Penn Sound page is a treasure trove of recordings of readings and performances by this poet whose amazing voice is ever in our ears, and whose new books are The President of Desolation and The Mystery of False Attachments. Jerry, it is paradise, a paradise of poets, to have you back here at the Writer's House. And it's always a paradise for me to be here. That's cool. And to hear you out. Oh, so this is a mutual paradise. Okay. <laughs> Selena, good to see you. Good to see you again. Thanks for walking down the walk. Thank you for having me. You walked the walk to talk the talk. I did. Yeah. You're thinking in German and writing in German these days. I so am, and I'm also teaching that. German, so I came over here and I had to tell Jonathan, now I've got to switch and speak English. I will do my best. Okay, I think you're doing pretty well. Jonathan, hello. How's it going? I want to say welcome to Penn, even though you've been around for a few months. And I hope this is the first of many poem talks. I would love to come back. It's such a welcoming studio. And we didn't even do it yet. We haven't we, even done it okay, yet. Okay, but this is going to be fun because the four of us are here today to talk about Michael McClure's Ghost Tantras, a book self-published in 1964 and long out of print until City Lights republished it, I think, Jerry, as late as 2013, maybe, recently. Penn Sound's McClure page includes various readings of the sections of Ghost Tantras, and we have chosen three to discuss today, sections 39, 49, and 51. Now, the performances of sections 39 and 51 will hear just as they were recorded in a studio and became part of Rock Drill CD number nine. But for section 49, we are going to listen to 
a four minute and 40 second recording in which Michael McClure first recently recalls the reading of this poem to four lions at the San Francisco Zoo and then includes the recording of McClure and the lions made back in 1966. So here now are sections 39, then 51, and then with the lions, 49 of Ghost Tantras. This poem was written the day after Marilyn Monroe died on August 6th, 1962. Marilyn Monroe, today thou hast passed the dark barrier, diving in a swirl of golden hair. I hope you have entered a sacred paradise for full warm bodies, full lips, full hips and laughing eyes. Agrur, know that, oh, oh, farewell, perfect mammal. Fare thee well from thy silken couch and dark day. Agrur, aru, garna ut is farewell. Mur drun fara rahur 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 di a o o dar no gru rar. Number 51. I love to think of the red purple rose in the darkness cooled by the night. We are served by machines making satins of sounds. Each blot of sound is a bud or a star. Body eats bouquets of the ears vista. Gar, booty, eyes, ears, nose. Dim thou rur, vorna garumina drusirchna thee. The machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe, when we groor on three, Mike Tat Sharu, Sridano deemed as one Itu's room. There is a film of my reading. This one to four lions in the lion house at the San Francisco Zoo, when I was a young man and had just written these. And in it I shout this poem to the lions. But then I am speaking to four of the loudest beings on earth. The lion is the loudest. And they were roaring back. I, want, I wanted to make poetry that, was, uh, that didn't have images in the, in the sense that Shelley calls mimetic images in the sense that where the image describes something in the real world, but in the sense where the, the sound of the poetry itself creates an image in the mind, in the body, in the muscles of the body. And it created a melody that was also an image that imprinted itself in the body physically. Silence the eyes. Become the senses. Drive drool from the fresh repugnance, thou whole, thou feeling creature. Live not for others, 
but affect thyself from thy enhanced interior, believing what thou carry, thy trillionic multitude of gra, vushas, and silences. Oh, you are heavier and dimmer than you knew and more solid and full of pleasure. Grrrr! 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 Oh boy, uh, I I I think we should start with that one. Talking about forty nine, how could we? Pi- there would be like, um, what is it in the room? The elephant in the room would be the lion in the room. Not talking about it. So yeah, although the the one reference to lion itself is in, is in the uh, other poem, the fifty one. But then- yeah, let's talk about the machine and then get to the lion. So okay. we see in fifty one machines are referred to twice. Jonathan, you first. Um, we are served by machines making satins of sound. 
And then the machines are too dull when we are lion poems that move and breathe. What do you start us off with that? Say anything, and then we'll turn to Jerry. I mean, in the first reference to machines, the word served implies a sort of hierarchy of use, right? Machines being under us or, or beneath us, uh, right. having a sort of use value to us. In the second reference, machine or machination is, is sort of we exceed machination or, or the capacity to be regulated through machines. And so mm. I guess the tension that I'm observing is, is between sort of use and excess. Um, I'm not quite sure how to, how to reconcile that with well, respect to... Well, it's a good it. start, though. Um, Jerry, the lion in all caps after the reference to the lion poems is, in fact, a lion poem-like line when we... Which is, in yeah. fact, what he says in the lion poem. So what, what do you make of this, the machines and the reference to that compound noun, lion poems? Well, it's all of a piece uh, with uh, the, the mammalian side of his manifesto. Right. <clears throat> so I mean, we, are, you know, we are all mammals, and he becomes a, a mammal patriot. I mean, that's part part of the context that he creates for himself and for us uh, in writing these uh, ghost tantras, which are really animal tantras, beast tantras. The machines that come in at the beginning, at the end, uh, are too dull. Mm-hmm. When we are lion poems. When we, we are, not, we, not when we write lion poems or perform them, but when we are lion when poems. When we are lion poems. Yeah. I think the when is so important because I think this is a very intentional when. This when actually gives us quite a lot of agency. I don't think it's a random when. We are lion poems, and it matches with that manifesto, that message. When we have a choice, we have agency, a choice to really embody and to recognize. The agency is both. It's a mental act of recognition of ourselves, but it's also an embodiment, a living of this animalness, of this lionness, of this poemness, altogether. So, Jonathan, back to you on the machines. What more can we say now that we've heard uh, a little more about what McClure is after? Where do the machines fit in in this ideology? I mean, the way that I'm, I've have been sort of reading technology into McClure is, I mean, language is prima facie, a form of technology, but specifically one of regulation. You know, you standardize languages so that people have to fit within a certain confine of expression. And I mean, I really like the point that you made about the when, um, because it, it does sort of indicate a very specific choice to exceed that sort of regulation. And so I guess with respect to the machines that are brought in, particularly with the latter half of this stanza, um, the machines are, are too dull. It seems to suggest that that form of regulation um, in, in technology that standardizes us, whether it's language or something else, um, is, is not enough for our mammalian patriot bodies because mm. uh, we exceed that. And, and, and yeah. You did it. Oh, that, that was really fantastic, Jerry. I want to let's get it, let's get to forty nine to the famous roar poem, and I want to. You can ignore the question, but I want to lead us in by saying this: um, in response to ghost tantras, Dennis Hopper, you know, countercultural uh, actor, uh, hippie guy, said, "Without McClure's roar, there would have been no sixties." Now that's a kind of a silly blurb statement, but it sounds about right. Anyway, as a, a contemporary 
of McClure's, you, you wouldn't have gone into the San Francisco Zoo to perform with the lions. But I could tell listening to this again all these years later, just a few minutes ago, watching your expression, you just thought this was an amazing thing for him to have done. You responded, your face suggested awe at this thing that he had pulled off. Well, also, as a poet, it, uh, it brings all sorts of things together. And the fact that, that he actually goes out there, you know, with the lions. And the lions, by the way, are wonderful. They're great, even when the poem's over. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, it's really beautifully coordinated between him and the lions. And I didn't remember in retrospect how, you know, how powerful his voice was in that, because usually, you know, Michael reads in a very soft voice that would seem to belie all of the grars and uh, without the lions, right. you know, are, are rather, you know, peaceful and placid. That's right. Uh, you know, but with the lions there... You know, it's as if he uh, he takes that lion energy unto himself. You know, and uh, it's it, it's also there are various contexts in in which he works, and you know, others of us, you know, also. But um, uh, it's in Technicians of the Sacred, that part of the book where I include you know. Uh, contemporary or modernist experimental works as analogs uh, to the tribal and oral poetry that forms most of the book. Uh, you know, I have um, uh, instances of uh, you know, of traditional uh, sound poetry, uh, poems without words. Uh, you know that go back into various cultures. You know, including the European. Uh, you know, or in uh, the the glossolalia of uh, uh, you know of religious performances, and then into uh, uh, the work of um, early modern experimentalists uh, like Hugo Ball and uh, Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich with Dada. Uh, you know, or Kurzwitters uh, in Germany in the 1920s, uh, you know, with the great sound poem, the, the Ur Sonata. Uh, you know, but then it struck me, too, that, you know, that both of those, uh, you know, of whom Michael was as aware as I was, create a, uh, a, a larger context. They're not mammal patriots, uh, you know, but the Ur Sonata is... Ur, you know, in the sense of getting back to the primeval, right. to something, you know, something basic in the human that we may be in danger of losing. Uh, you know, so both uh, Baal and Schwitters are seeing themselves uh, and seeing the poetry without words, the sound poetry, uh, as having some kind of experiential religious significance. McClure, as far as I knew him, not really so, but the poetry contains all yes. of that. I mean, certainly 49 puts him in the mode and tradition you just described, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. this is a great way to rediscover or re-radicalize Michael McClure. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want, I want to bespeak a little praise of Jerry Rothenberg um, in this regard. We take for granted, I believe, Jerry, because of the work that you did, that you've done uh, in Technicians of the Sacred and elsewhere, but I'm thinking of Technicians of the Sacred mostly. Uh, The work you've done was to make a connection that would have struck people 
or if they're not aware of this work, would strike them today as counterintuitive or wrong-headed, which is to take the machine-minded, technology-minded uh, Dadaists and other radical modernists of the 20th century and connect them to uh, mammalism and uh, uh, mammal patriotism and animalism and uh, respect for the origins of poetry, which often to celebrate the return of the animals in the spring, a chant that you've, that you've done yourself, um, to put those two in connection, we take for granted, but that's work that had to be done in anthologies and at a certain version of poetic counterculture in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, that did that work that said, we are, this is of a piece, this work is of a piece. Um, so I guess I'm just saying thank you for making all that uh, obvious now, and I turn to Selena for say to say anything she likes at this point. Thank you. I want to thank Jerry as well because that was an amazing summary and explanation. I was thinking the exact same thing that I'll just mention. That was fantastic. If you read just this poem in isolation, you see a very, uh, I think, a very common trick. Sort of, McClure is teaching us a few words. He's teaching us a few animal words right in the in the second line. Drive jour, we have that one, and then a few lines down, the multitude of gras vouches and silences we recognize already. But gras is another one, right? We're learning these words. What was so amazing about his communion? with the lions, that communication is that the lions already know these words. When we read them, we're being taught something new. He's communing with those lions. They're responding for seconds and seconds and seconds after the end of the poem because they already speak this language and they recognize that he's speaking directly to them, which I think is just so beautiful. And it makes a, a very sharp connection for me to what you were mentioning, Jerry, about the German modernists and the Dada movement is a sort of anti-pedagogical, this is not a lesson that I'm teaching you, and that contradicts what I just said, right? Oh, this is a trick in poetry to teach you these new words. It's not teaching, it's leading by example. It's performing, it's living. And, and I want to turn to Jonathan, but just insert this thing that Jerry Rothenberg is always saying in one way or other, which is that let's go to find poetry to a place where poets are doing poetry rather than sitting around talking about it. And if you go to those places, the connections will start to be made. Uh, making poetry is really all you need to do, and the understanding of poetry will come from making. Uh, McClure is clearly interested in this idea that um, poems don't have to be images. Uh, a poem whose sound makes an image in the mind is also making an image. This is a way of tweaking early modernism, which was very image-obsessed, such as with the imagists and so forth. So, um, Jonathan, where do you want to go? I was struck when, when Jerry was speaking a little bit earlier, uh, and you referenced sort of glossolalia and sort of speaking in tongues, mm -hmm. glossolalia being the sense that a poem or some sort of religious speech act is possessing the body and coming out without one's control. And there is a sense that you, you, you do get that with McClure reading some of these poems, especially with the words that are stretched and, and sort of distorted outside of their, like, I don't know, traditional semantic order. 
it becomes this really interesting sort of act of performance. He's interested in poems that imprint on the body with their rhythms, and you can tell when he's speaking and shifting his rhythms in this way that he's sort of inscribing himself with this with this rhythm in a really cool. Uh, he calls it a devotional act, but uh, I wanted to sort of pick up on that sort of glossolalic element. But also, I mean, even just the tone, if you look at the poem that we just read, 49, it's sort of split into two. You have uh, sort of standardized English at the top, and then you have that uh, mammalian language at the bottom. And when we listened to this recording, the standardized English almost sounded like a preaching uh, to me. And so I guess this is me trying to weave together the conversation that you brought in uh, and then also this conversation about glossolalia and, and where that leaves a poem that seems to not want to deal with mimetic images. Does does that mm. sort of necessitate the use of, of a glossolalic mm. language? Does it necess- necessitate the use of sort of a, a corporeal language? Um, it's it's a question that's an open-ended one that I don't think is easily answerable. But. Yeah, he's, he's moving also, it seems to me, toward, toward music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because music uh, within this context is uh, a poetry, uh, you know, without words. Uh, and uh, so if we, if we go back to Schwitters again, uh, Schwitters writes Ursonata. So, you know, it takes sonata, the, you know, the, the musical term because, uh, you know, there are no words in it. There are sounds. And, uh, uh, you know, at the end of 49, we're just into the domain of sounds now. Uh McClure's choice is to grar and grar and extended grar and shorten grar and, uh, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, there he is performing uh, a tantra with the lions. And not a music without ideas, not Mm. a music without meaning. In fact, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording earlier today. Jerry, uh, you like to quote Tristan Zara saying, thought is made in the mouth. That's what's happening here. It would be wrong to read Michael McClure as, you know, just growling. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, Michael uh, Michael knows a lot. Uh, uh, Michael, um, uh, in, in my interactions, <coughs> you know, with him, uh, first it was... It was, it was Michael, whom I barely knew at that time, uh, who in response to Technicians of the Sacred, uh, you know, connected me or connected it uh, with what was going on, he said, in uh, in San Francisco at that time. You know, I was living in, uh, in New York. You know, things had opened up on the West Coast, uh, you know, by the, uh, the late 1960s. Michael recognized for me... Uh, you know what technicians of the sacred was uh, was doing, uh, and and then uh, I had a later interaction with him around uh, uh, more traditional uh, European or international poetry uh, through uh, through Romanticism. Uh, you know, Michael was an unabashed. Uh, uh, romanticism and lover of Shelley and so on and uh, you know <clears throat> more than I was at that uh, at that period and when I came to do f- you know finally a, a, a gathering of uh, uh, romantic and post-romantic poetry. In poems for the millennium, uh, right? Yeah, uh, you know Michael was a, was a great supporter. Yeah. Uh, in 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 that and uh, this is why we do poem talk, if I may. Uh, uh, I asked you, I gave you a list of 40 poets we haven't covered yet in Poem Talk, and you picked Michael McClure. Uh, one reason was 
maybe he's not well enough known, but I think underlying that, and we can talk about that later, is um, this idea that we may be miscategorizing someone like McClure. And already in this conversation, I think we've done a pretty good job of alerting people to the various connections. Um, Selena, I want to turn to the Marilyn Monroe poem, 39, and invite you to say anything you like to get us started on talking about that. Today thou hast passed the dark barrier. I actually want to jump straight to the end because, as always, it fits perfectly with something Jerry just mentioned. Is about music, and when I read this the first time, I tried three different things I was telling Jonathan earlier. I tried reading these poems silently to myself, I tried reading them out loud, and then I listened to the recordings. And when I read this one out loud, I ended up singing them because these these lion poems, these this end right here is a coda. You can feel this form. This is a musical coda. It's different. The tone is different. It resolves differently than the rest of the poem. And you said singing, meaning you were home preparing and you did this aloud. I was. I did it. I did it aloud many times. Should I do? I'm going to do, do the you, last time. Would you do it? Don't laugh do at me. Few, I'm going to read No, there's just no the laughing possible. We're in the room with lines. Jerry Rothenberg. He's done some, some singing in his time, okay, so he's good. not going to be embarrassed. And I'm not a... I'm not a singer, but I think these last few lines are just so beautiful. After farewell, when you get to this last section, this is the coda. I swear it is. was marvelous. Thank you. And it's it's very, very different when I listened to the recording. I thought, wow, we have very different interpretations, but I stand by this because when you read the entire thing, I feel such a shift that this is a very respectful and peaceful and mournful resolution to Mm. this, to this poem. Jonathan, you've got to be speechless after that, but Uh, yeah, I'm not going to sing for you. I'm not (laughs) asking you to sing, but farewell, perfect mammal. Yeah, farewell, perfect. It's doing something right away. He wrote these poems in 64. She dies in 62. For all we know, he wrote it on August 6th, 19th, the day she died. But he's already enlarging the category of what she was, which was, of course, the big problem that Marilyn Monroe, one of the big problems she suffered from was a certain narrowing of the categories for her. So how do you read that farewell perfect mammal? I mean, as an occasional poem, there's something lamentary to it, of course, but that it starts with the name makes this elegy begin almost apostrophically, like it's an invocation, an animation of Marilyn Monroe, and I was interested in in not so much how this elegy seemed to say goodbye, but how it seemed to bring her back, uh, in especially with this discussion of Amalian language and, and sort of the singing that we just listened to. One thing that I picked up on, and and this is in the introduction to my book, but McClure mentions that these are his personal poems, but that you can read them too if you'd like. And I think what's really fantastic about the way in which the poems stretch language is that they they can become your personal poems too by bringing them up and by embodying them. And there's something kind of revolutionary about making an elegy uh, 
putting an elegy in that light because it seems to suggest a constant animation of Monroe. And so I think to shy an away from answering your question. An animation. You didn't shy away. You finally answered it, I think. Animation. Are you re- with respect to Farewell Perfect Mammal? Or, yeah, or, or the, uh, the earlier lines of... Uh, warm, warm bodies, full mm-hmm. lips. Now, these are plural. The lips can be plural on a singular person. Hips also, there are two of them typically. Uh, and laughing eyes, plural eyes, there are two of them. But warm bodies suggest that it's not just about Marilyn Monroe's body, is that she has joined the, the other bodies. And I think, Jerry, I'm going to turn to you. I think this resonates with a line from the um, preface to the new edition of ghost tantras that makes me think of this, uh, quoting McClure. I believe that a poem I make is part of myself like an organ or spirit body, and these poem tantras are becoming a body and growing up, having a life of their own. So we have lots of bodies going around, including the embodying that he thinks about when he's making poems. Jerry, your thoughts on the Marilyn Monroe poem? It's it's interesting. That, I mean, there were a number of poems written on the death of Marilyn Monroe, uh, or I particularly think of the famous one by Frank O'Hara. But Michael is incorporating it into the uh, the body of the ghost, ghost tantras. I mean, this is already number thirty nine uh, in, in in the series, and he's bringing her into the world of uh, the ma- mammal patriots. Uh, you know, but also, uh, you know, celebrating the sexuality of the image, the warm bodies, uh, uh, you know, all of which, you know, makes her a uh, perfect mammal. Uh, uh, so it's um, in this uh, physical presence, in a, uh, which may have spiritual overtones, but it's a physical presence, and, uh, yeah, and he's... Uh, Really, you know, bringing that uh, across, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, Marilyn, the, the, the perfect mammal. Mm-hmm. You know, we are imperfect mammals, you know, but, uh, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, she has achieved perfect mammal uh, status, however seriously or not you take that. Right, right. Well, Selena takes the coda very seriously, so I want to um, uh, end our discussion about that poem by returning to you, Selena. So what is, how does the coda function? So it seems like you're, I think you're suggesting that he's done this work of elegizing and now he's sending her off to a place that can be characterized by this music that he makes in his ghost tantras. Does that make sense? I think that does make sense because there's also a shift between farewell perfect mammal and fare thee well. And I want to draw everyone's attention just for a minute to the pronouns in this particular poem and in all of them, actually. I have yet to find any third-person pronouns anywhere, and I'm, I'm sure they're somewhere, and I haven't found any, but looking through this entire collection, I and you are everywhere. We is everywhere. We have the possessives as well. And then we have thou and thee. Mm -hmm. Thou and thee, using the second person. But this is, again, this communion, just like with the lions. I think the musical side, this coda, is a farewell spoken or sung directly to her, to her spirit. Mm. Uh, It was Bruce Conner, the artist, who first went to the zoo with him uh, and they were recording something else, another thing for another project. 
And then I believe they got the idea to go into the place with the lions uh, and did, it was an audio recording first, the Connor audio. Then later, and you'll have to remember the, try to help me remember the name of this, but this really wonderful guy who created this television series called Poetry USA, and it was, this was an episode, and so they went back with cameras, and I'm guessing since it was only two years later that the same four lions were there, uh, roughly speaking, and they did this, they, they did an encore, basically. But I wonder if Zach would be willing to cue up that the part of the poem where he turns to the second person, you, and the poem was not written with lions in mind necessarily, right? But suddenly he's speaking to the lions and we, and they respond, oh, you are heavier and dimmer than you knew. They come in after the word silences. The trillionic multitude of gras, vushes, and silences cue the lions. And then, oh, you are heavier and dimmer. It's the second person coming alive. Thy trillionic multitude of gras, vushes, and silences. Oh, you are heavier and dimmer than you knew and more solid and full of pleasure. Grrr! At that moment, you becomes very, very pointed, mm -hmm. and it becomes so much more part of this, um, this animalism. Uh, it's quite a, quite a brilliant use of the second person. Uh, what we're going to do now, is we could talk forever about this, but I'd like to get final thoughts from each of you about this. So I'm going to start with I'm going to start with Jonathan. A final thought? I think one thing that has struck me just reading these poems multiple times is the way in which at the very beginning of the reading experience, you know, the stretching of these words might seem like nonsense uh, upon sort of uh, a devotion to sort of reading the poems, a practice of actually looking at them and taking them seriously for what they are, that perception that these grar noises are nonsensical actually shifts quite significantly and you realize that there's a huge amount of sense invested into these distortions. Uh, it does involve a lot of sort of uh, moves on, on the reader's part. You really do have to tinker with it, but I think... Uh, I think to close, at least from my perspective, I, I gained a lot of appreciation for McClure by giving him the devotion that I think he deserved as a reader. And so I think, I think that's a larger comment about nonsense writing and, and sense writing in, mm -hmm. in, in particular, but that's where I think I will rest. Amen. Well, that's a great, great reminder. Jerry Rothenberg, final thought? Oh, with Michael McClure uh, yeah, was... Uh, is a, a lover of poetry, uh, and uh, it was a great pleasure and revelation to see how this w was embodied in his uh, in his work, and uh, uh, you know, and the, the range of it, which was not limitless uh, but quite large, and uh, uh, and he lived it and. Uh, uh, I don't think the, uh, the the mammalian consciousness is necessarily going to have any long-lasting effects, uh, you know. But it's uh, it, it's it's part of a 
uh, of an image of a poet and poetry that uh, uh, that he creates in his life and um, worth an extraordinary amount. Can I ask in that a sense follow up question yeah. before we turn to Selena's final word? Um, you chose McClure, and we agreed on these poems. They may have been my ideas, but mm. my idea. But uh, when I've told people that Jerry Rothenberg is coming to do a poem talk, and we've chosen these lion poems, or at least one of them, everyone that I spoke to said, that's perfect, <laughs> right? What do they mean? There's something that resonates here for you about this performance, the, the importance of the sound. Well, it, it, it echoes or it rhymes things that certainly during the Technicians of the Sacred Days, you know, I was uh, promoting as a core value of, uh, of, of poetry. And, uh, uh, well, so McClure on his part, you know, brought me into it uh, when uh, University of California Press no, sorry, Doubleday. Doubleday was the original publisher of that. Uh, you know, looking for, for blurbs. Uh, and McClure, uh, after the, uh, I guess, the hardcover had, you know, been in touch with me, we struck up a, you know, a, a correspondence. Uh, he sent a blurb that uh, uh, read, uh, <coughs> Jerome Rothenberg is a DNA spaceman inhabiting the mammal caves of now. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I mean, not because it was, you know, building me up in some way, but, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, Michael McClure is a DNA spaceman inhabiting the mammal caves of now. And uh, he... He is was representative of a, of a, of, a, of a time and uh, you know and of a, uh, an individual mammal consciousness running through that yeah. or whatever kind of consciousness you want to choose. Uh, uh, so I when I saw his name on the list that you presented, you know I, I wanted to take it. It's a, a occasion you know to, to pay a kind of homage to him yes. that I probably have not done sufficiently. I really, I'm glad that you did. And as I turn to Selena, I'll just quote Dennis Hopper again. Without McClure's roar, there would have been no 60s. Perfect, perfect blurb since we're dueling blurbs. Yes, thank you. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. It's a great answer to my question. Selena, final thought. My final thought is actually a plug for something everyone should listen to, and it's mentioned in the introduction to this 2013 edition of McClure's work. And it is Brahms from 1896, the Fia Ernst Gesinger, the four series songs, especially the third one in connection with this Marilyn Monroe with number 39. The third one, the title is O Tod wie bitter du bist, O Death, How Bitter You Are. Mm. And they're really, really beautiful. Wonderful. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, my final thought is to quote McClure on that whole story about Bruce Conner and the San Francisco Zoo, and then they went back. Here's what he says about that experience, that we, that, that we how, how lucky we are that they recorded this, that we heard at the beginning of this episode. Uh, the newly published first edition of my book is in my back pocket. What, they're at the zoo. He's speaking in the present tense about that time. He happens to have ghost tantras in his back pocket and through a lucky event we end up in the lion house and I yell this tantra to the four main males of the building 
they roar back with me and we sing it together. The five of us are deeply pleased. Also, I am profoundly shaken. And then shaken again when Bruce plays back the tape he made with his high fidelity machine. And I've heard uh, several witnesses at parties and gatherings when Bruce Connor would have people over, he would put this recording on with a high fidelity machine. In other words, I imagine loud with a lot of bass. And I can just imagine them all shaken by it. Quite amazing. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Who wants to gather some paradise? Jonathan, are you ready? Uh, sure. I mean... I, this isn't something that's new per se, but it's something that's new to me. And so I think it's a fitting, fitting enough to, to say here. But there's a book of poems by Nick Thurston called Of the Subcontract, and it's published by Coach House Press. And they're poems attributed to Thurston, but that were actually commissioned and developed through Amazon's uh, Turk program, which is to say uh, distributive labor uh, bodies who are paid very insignificant amounts of money, uh, often automatively. And so it's this really sort of ethically complex book of poetry um, that's sort of tied in with questions about capital. Uh, and it's really festive and great. And I would recommend anyone read it if they are interested in poetry and also capital. Thank you so much. Jerry Rothenberg, Gather Some Paradise. I would take the occasion to talk about something that I'm working on. Please do. Uh, which is... Uh, uh, another big book, uh, an assemblage, a gathering, an anthology uh, of the poetry of the Americas, uh, North and South, from origins to present. Uh, and uh, when I first started to think about doing this, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, there must be a number of books like this. Uh, and so far, I can't find any... You know, that would go back to the beginnings up to the present and cover both continents and some of the outlying islands. Uh, so f first with uh, the Mexican poet Heriberto Yepes, and then when circumstances didn't allow Heriberto to continue with the Mexican poet Jorge Tabuada, uh, and uh, with promised publication from University of California Press, uh, you know, a, a big book that will start... Uh, uh, 10,000 years ago uh, in the uh, painted caves of uh, Patagonia. Not, not the painted caves of Europe, but the painted caves of the Americas in Patagonia. Uh, the imprint of, uh, of hands on the, the cave walls. This happens in many parts of the world, but so it did also uh, in, uh, in, in this part. And then through the multiple uh, languages and uh, um, you know, both the European languages that came into the, the two continents and uh, the indigenous languages uh, that have either died off or have amazingly persisted into, into, the, uh, into the present. Is there a title yet for this? Uh, it might be Poems for the Millennium, Volume 6. It might take a separate title. But Fantastic. It's not titled Another yet. big project. How do you do this? Transnational anthology. Big projects. Mm -hmm. You're just amazing. Selena, gather some paradise. I would love to. My paradise is actually something from UPenn's own Ahmed Amala, his new 
book of poetry, Bitter English, is fantastic and it covers so many themes that are so dear to my heart and I think so dear for so many people about exile, about family, about loss, about and the about boundaries of language and of and living between two yeah. languages or multiple, more than two as well. Uh, fantastic. If you don't have a copy yet, pick one up. University of Chicago has a poetry imprint and that's where it comes from. Uh, and by the time people hear this episode of Poem Talk, we will have had a big celebration, re celebratory reading for Ahmad, and uh, the recording of that will be available. All right, well, my uh, gathering paradise uh, Retrievals by Jerome Rothenberg, uh, 1955 to 2010, a collection of previously uncollected, not necessarily unpublished, but uncollected poems. Published by Junction Press, which is uh, a project of Mark Weiss Retrievals. Well, that's all the becoming the senses we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs and Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests so much, to my guests, Jonathan Dick, Selena Dyer, and Jerome Rothenberg, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner, who came in today despite feeling not his best, so thank you, Zach. A shout-out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. In our next episode, we will have once again gone on the road to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where at the Woodbury Poetry Room we will gather with Stephanie Burt, Bonnie Costello, and Anna Strong Safford to talk about Tonya Foster's A Swarm of Bees in High Court. This is Al Phil Reese, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.